If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open to Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, for those of you who maybe are new, we're going through a series called The Sermon That God Wrote, where we look at the book of Hebrews, this, this sermon that was written down and turned into a letter. We're in Hebrews chapter 9, and we're kind of uh, finishing up, or about to finish up, uh, an extended section on this idea that there's a new covenant under Jesus that's better than the, the first covenant that was given in Moses. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to read our verses, verses 23 through 28. I'd like to pray, and then let's spend some time unpacking these verses together. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 23. <clears throat> Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we right now come before you with hearts full of joy. Uh, God, there, there has been no shortage of evidences of your grace on us as a church family, and we simply want to say thank you and, and to give you worship and praise for that. God, we thank you for this new facility, this opportunity to gather in this new room together to worship you. We thank you for uh, just the many volunteers who have served so hard to, to make this all work. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is a firm foundation that we can build our lives on the truthfulness of your word. And God, I ask and pray right now as we spend time reading and studying your word, I ask that you'd send the Holy Spirit to, to bring these words to life in our hearts and in our minds. May this not just be a mere intellectual exercise for us, but may this be uh, life and transformation that we might grow to love Jesus more and we might grow to look more like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. And everyone said, amen. You know, some things in life are just kind of once-in-a-lifetime events. They're, they're unrepeatable. Even as much as you might want to, to have another go at it, they're, they're just kind of one and done. Uh, I'll tell you a story. I have a friend who uh, recently realized that a business trip of his was going to coincide with the, the, the last home game of the Golden State Warriors. And I'm not a big basketball fan, but I have really enjoyed watching one player this season named Steph Curry. You guys, you guys been watching him at all? Shattering records. He, he broke his own three-pointer record, and then their team won the most games in any season uh, since the Bulls in the mid-90s. They actually won the record. They took over the record of the most wins in a season. Uh, I remember when a team called the Mariners did that a few years back, but that's a different story. My buddy, my buddy realized that he was going to be in town on that same night of their last home game, and they're going to win it all, and they're going to set the records and all that. And so he thought, well, there's, there's probably no tickets available. So he looked. Of course, the game was sold out. 
He made a call. He had a friend who knew a guy who knew a guy. And within two hours, I believe it was two hours, he had in his inbox courtside seats, right? And so he surprised his dad. He said, Dad, I'm going to go on this business trip. You want to go with me? His dad's a huge sports fan. Surprised his dad, didn't tell him, and he ended up videotaping him as they walked in and sat down literally courtside. We have to keep your feet back so as to not put your legs in the field of play. They watched the game. They got to shake some of the players' hands. They're just right there. Talk about a once-in-a-lifetime event, right? That's pretty special. Now, that's a, that's a once-in-a-lifetime event on kind of a, a unique sort of a scale. But for many of us, as we walk through life, we have these different events that we go through, different things in certain stages of life. You know, maybe for, for some of you who are in, in high school, there's the, the time when you get your driver's license, the first time you're allowed to get behind the wheel of a car legally and scare your parents <laughs> half to death. Uh, for others of you, your, your wedding day, you know, that day that you got married, that's a, a once-in-a-lifetime event. It's unrepeatable. Or even in the case of maybe a, a remarriage or a second marriage, uh, there still is no other time when you got married to that person. Or for, for many of you as Christians, baptism, there's a one-time event. You got baptized, you went under the water to declare your uh, affiliation with Jesus. These one-time events are very meaningful and they're very special and they're not intended to be repeated. In our passage today, the author of Hebrews is going to highlight three unrepeatable events that have happened in the course of human history, and they have tremendous significance in our lives. So these three events we're going to see are, are first, the death of Jesus. That's the first unrepeatable, one-time-only event. The second event is our own deaths, the day that we pass from, from life to death. And the third is the return of Jesus. So Jesus' death, our death, and Jesus' return. Those are the three events we're going to look at. And what we're going to see is that in each one of these events, there's a real encouragement. There's something that's very freeing about it. But we're also going to see that there's something really challenging. And as we walk through, I'll, I'll explain more as we go. So let's start clear back in verse 23, and let's talk about first the death of Jesus. Thus it was necessary... For the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. A little explanation here. We've been talking for several weeks in a row about how the Old Testament tabernacle and then ultimately the Old Testament temple was all a signpost pointing forward to the real work that Jesus is doing right now on our behalf in heaven. So we've talked about these, these kind of archaic-sounding rituals to us, but how they really serve to point us to the work of Jesus. Verse 24, here's where he's going with it. He says, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Sound City, is anyone else encouraged that Jesus is going before God on our behalf? Is that encouraging to you? He's going before God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. Now, here's the point. It's not to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Under the old covenant, 
over and over and over again, the priest would have to go and take blood into the tabernacle, into the temple, every year to, to ask for forgiveness of sins. And it was repeated on and on and on and on. And if uh, the best case scenario was that you could know that your sins were forgiven for one year. But now under Jesus, a sacrifice has been made so that our sins can be forgiven, not just for a year, but for all time. And the sacrifice, it isn't a priest taking an animal sacrifice. It's a great high priest who takes his own blood. It's Jesus Christ. And this is incredible news because it means that if you are a Christian, if you have received forgiveness that is found in the blood of Christ, then you can know that your sins are forgiven. Is that encouraging to anyone this morning? You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to doubt if you are forgiven. You can know that you know that you know that God loves you and you are forgiven. If you want to know that God loves you, if you want to know that your sins are forgiven, you remember the cross of Jesus Christ. Under the old covenant, there were many days of atonement. Every year, a day of atonement. But in the new covenant, there is one day of atonement. It's the death of Jesus Christ. In the old covenant, there were many signposts, many things pointing you to the ultimate destination. But the destination is here. It's in Jesus. And I like that he uses this phrase, the end of the ages. Isn't that an interesting phrase? The end of the ages. One of the things uh, I like to remind people of is, is sometimes people like to say, oh, we're living in the end times. We're living in the last days. And I always say, absolutely. We have been for the last 2,000 years. Ever since Jesus died and rose again, a, a fundamental shift in human history has taken place. And we are now living in the last days. We're living at the end of the age. Now, this is freeing, isn't it? Isn't it freeing to know that Christ's work on the cross, it's a done deal. Our salvation is secure, our sins are atoned for, and we are free. That's good news. And, and, and I told you that there's something freeing, but there's also something challenging about each one of these truths. You might be saying, well, Aaron, what's challenging about that? That sounds like great news. Let me tell you, I think there's two things that are challenging about this truth. The first one is this. For some, you don't think you actually need that much forgiveness. To hear that Christ's death has paid the price for your sins, you think, well, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not that bad. And I love you, but you're wrong. The Bible says that, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's a verse in, in Genesis, I've been studying recently uh, through Genesis, and there's a, a verse that says that, that the Lord looked and he saw that every thought and intention of the heart of every man was only evil continually. It's about, as, it's about as hardcore of a verse as you're going to find in the Bible. That God's looking. He said, there's, there's, there's no one who seeks God. There's no one who loves God. There's no one who does his will. There's no one who chooses on their own to follow his, his paths or his ways. Friends, apart from God, we are a hopeless mess. Amen? And for some of you, it's, it's hard for you to hear this word of the death of Christ giving you forgiveness of sins because you don't really think you're that bad. And actually, the, the, the thing you're doing and I would challenge you to not do, is you're probably comparing yourself to somebody else. You're probably saying, well, I'm not as bad as Joe. I'm not as bad as Sally. If your name is Joe or Sally, I apologize, but somebody might be using you to compare themselves to. 
You know, who do, we, who do we say, right? There's always Hitler. If you want to compare yourself to anybody and feel good about your life, oh, they're not like Hitler, right? Child abusers, murderers, New York Yankees fans, whatever it might be. But here's the deal. When we stand before God, we don't get to come and say, well, I was at least better than those people, and God, I'm sure you grade on the curve. No, the Bible is very clear. God's standard is perfection. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And for you to judge your own well-being based on somebody else is actually incredibly burdensome. Because what happens if they all of a sudden get better? There's always somebody to look down on. There's always somebody to look up to. How will you ever know? Friends, I'm telling you, the most freeing thing that you can admit is that you are a great sinner and that there is a greater Savior whose name is Jesus. For others of you, though, this truth is challenging for a different reason. This truth is challenging because you have a hard time receiving grace and mercy. You might think something like, I'm, I'm so undeserving, I'm so unworthy, how could God love me? This sounds too good to be true. And then you live in a place where you end up beating yourself up for your sin. As a pastor, I've seen this countless times. Over and over and over again, I see people who, who just have a hard time receiving the grace and the mercy that's offered to them in Jesus. Think about what that says to God. God, I know you sent your son Jesus to take an absolute beating, to be crucified, nailed to a cross that I might be forgiven of my sins. But I probably need to do a little bit more. I probably need to get beat up too. Friends, hear me. It is a good thing to be brokenhearted over your sin. It's a good thing even to weep or to shed a tear when you realize that, that, that you're sinful and that your sins necessitated the death of Jesus. But if we stop there and we don't go all the way to receiving that grace and rejoicing in the love that he's shown us, we're actually keeping God at arm's length and we're offending him. There's a quote from a an author and biblical counselor named Heath Lambert that captures this really well. He says this, mental punishments are not helpful because they deal with sin in a self-centered way instead of a Christ-centered way. Meditating on how miserable and pathetic you are perpetuates the sinful self-centeredness that led you to sin in the first place. Condemning self-talk still has you standing center stage as you reflect on what you think about what you have done and as you describe what you think you deserve because of what you did. It's all about you. The problem is there is too much you in all this. You need Christ. The only way to break the vicious cycle is to get outside of yourself to Jesus. You need to stop talking to yourself in categories of condemnation and begin talking to God in categories of confession. This is challenging for some of you, I know. Jesus' death is a one-time event, and if you are a Christian, your sins are atoned for, and there's no more atoning work for you to do. It's Jesus. So that's the first event. That's the first unrepeatable event that the author of Hebrews wants us to look at. The second one is this, is our own death. Verse 27, just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, 
having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We'll look at the return of Christ in a moment. I want to focus in on this phrase that it is appointed for a man to die once. And and right out of the gate, uh, this is helpful for why Christians don't believe in reincarnation. This verse, among others, says very clearly that we have one life to live. We have been given this this life, this one opportunity by God to to come into right relationship with Him, to receive salvation, to receive forgiveness. And there is a time when each one of us will face death. Should the Lord not return before then? But no one escapes. No one escapes death. I mean, this is instantly challenging for us right out of the gate. Why? It challenges our pride. It challenges our pride. I think at times, we deceive ourselves into feeling invincible. I know for for many who are younger, death feels like a really long, far off, far away thing. Uh, And, and, you know, like even just the simple innocence of a child just, you know, climbing on something that they shouldn't be climbing on, just what what could happen to me? Like, well, a lot could happen to you. And the older you get, the less you want that to happen to you. But I think we, even in the Western world, in the United States of America in particular, we have such a, a confidence and such a faith in science and medicine, and we've made such incredible medical advancements. I can understand why people feel that way. I read an article not too long ago where it said, they claimed that the first people who are going to live to be 500 years old are already alive right now. That we can grow organs, we can solve all the you know, diseases in the world, and some, some people are going to live to be 500 years old and they're already alive right now. I also read an article that said that scientists don't know why or how cats purr. They don't even know how a cat purrs. This is 2016, and they have some educated guesses. I'm like, it's a cat. Like, can't we just get one and look inside of it? I don't mean that in, no, I, I love cats. You cat haters are wicked. You need to repent. See point number one. You're much more sinful than you think you are. <laughs> Listen, it challenges our pride because we live in this narrative in the United States of America that you are in charge of your own destiny. You are the captain of your own ship. You are the master of your own fate. But the truth is, you can eat organic kale and drink filtered water and exercise twice a day, and you are still going to die. Happy Sunday. Nobody escapes death. Death is a great tragedy. Let me just say that. Death is not supposed to be. It is not a part of God's original created design. God created mankind to live forever. God created us uh, to live in his presence, connected to him, receiving life, that, that when, when human, humankind was created, there was no breach in relationship, and then therefore we would live eternally because, not eternally, I should say live forever because we have connection to God who is himself life. But we see that our first parents, Adam and Eve, they sinned. They sinned in the garden. Because of that, the consequence was separation from God. And ever since, it's like, it's like uh, you know, a, a device, a phone that, that got unplugged from the wall. We're still living, but the battery's wearing out. None of us live forever. Every death is a tragedy. The, the ripping apart of the spirit and the body was never meant to happen. The Bible teaches that that upon death, our bodies go into the ground where they decay, they decompose. And our spirits go to one of two places. 
For those who have trusted in Jesus, those who have said, I'm, I'm a sinner, I'm in need of his grace and, and his salvation, that our spirit goes to be in the presence of Christ. Our spirit goes to paradise or uh, to Abraham's side or to heaven, a lot of different terms that the Bible uses. It's a place of, of rest, it's a place of peace, it's a place of joy. And for those who have not trusted in Jesus, for those who have resisted him and, and not received his grace and forgiveness, the Bible says that their spirits go to a place called Hades, where they're waiting in, in fearful expectation of judgment. Those who are in paradise are also waiting, but they're waiting for the final resurrection. There's, a, there's a, an eager anticipation, if you will, but those who have not trusted in Christ are waiting in fear and waiting in anxiety, Death is a great tragedy. And this challenges us because some of us don't want to think about death. Some of you today, you, you may not be a Christian, and, and you are, are kind of just banking on the thought that, well, if there's an afterlife, it's probably for good people, and I'm better than some, or maybe I'm better than most, or I'm better than some of those other people that I can think of. And friends, I'm telling you, God's word is clear. The only way to experience eternal life, the only way to experience eternal joy is to give your sins to Jesus and trust in him. Receive his forgiveness. Receive his grace and his salvation. On the last day, we'll get to this in a minute, the dead will rise. So I want you to know something. Death doesn't get the last word. Death doesn't win. That's not the end of the story. Sometimes we frame the narrative as, you know, we live, you do this and that, and then you die. Well, that's not the end of the story. Listen, if you're a Christian, death doesn't get the last word. you know why? Because we serve a Savior who conquered over death. I don't know if you know this. They killed him. They crucified him. They had the, the blood was drained out of his body, but on the third day, God raised him from the dead, and Jesus is alive forevermore. The tomb is empty, Sound City. Death doesn't get the last word. So this is freeing for us. When we think about death, we don't have to fear death. If you're a Christian, you don't have to fear death because Jesus has conquered over death. And here's another thing. You don't have to fear judgment. We think about death. It's appointed for a man to die once and then after that comes judgment. <clears throat> we don't have to fear that judgment. Do you know why? Because our judgment day already happened 2,000 years ago, and the judgment that we deserve was poured out on Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, no judgment for you. Amen? We get to rejoice and experience his goodness and his grace on that last day when Jesus returns, which, which is our last thing, our last unrepeatable, unrepeatable event that the author of Hebrews wants us to look at. Let me show you this uh, by, by kind of looking back again at verse 24 and 28. It says this, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So Christ, so, so he, I'm, I'm skipping over that middle section, but there's a connection here. This, this first, this first uh, appearance of Jesus is a, is a parallel to the first appearance of the high priest. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now this is interesting for us because it helps make sense of some of the Old Testament rituals and practices. There's a Bible commentator named David Allen who explains this really well. 
He says this, the, the two appearances of Jesus mentioned in Hebrews 9, 26 and 28 correspond to the appearances of the high priest on the day of atonement. His first appearance was in the outside courtyard to offer the sacrifice on the altar of burnt offering. So I want you to imagine there's a big crowd. They're all standing around, and everybody gets to see the high priest perform the sacrifice in the outer courtyard. They're watching. He kills the animal. He takes the blood. But from here, he entered the sanctuary, carrying the blood for atonement, and in doing so, he passed out of the sight of the people. <clears throat> the people anxiously awaited his return. So imagine the courtyard's quiet. Everyone's standing. They're waiting. What's going to happen? Will our sins be forgiven for this year? Upon completion of his duties in the inner sanctuary, he emerged to the great joy of all the people. In a similar fashion, Jesus, our high priest, appeared the first time in his incarnation to make atonement for, the, for our sins on the cross. His ascension took him out of sight into the presence of God where he continually appears as our advocate. And one day he will return to this earth and appear a second time to bring final salvation. Is that good news? And, and, and also, what's, what's more than just the good news on the surface of it, does that help you understand even just a little bit more about these rituals and practices in the Old Testament? These are not random. These are not miscellaneous. These are not just because. These are things that God set up in his wisdom and in his providence to point us forward toward Jesus. There were many days of atonement back then, but now there's been one day of atonement. And the author of Hebrews speaks about Jesus' ascension more than really uh, any of the other New Testament authors. He, he speaks about Jesus' ascension quite a bit, that Jesus has ascended out of our sight. He's gone into the presence of God in heaven, and there he's ministering on our behalf. But one day, one day, he's going to return. Just like the high priest wouldn't stay behind the curtain forever, he would come out and he would declare, sins are forgiven. The sacrifice was accepted. It's all good. We're waiting for our high priest to reappear as well. The Bible uses some different terms for this moment. Uh, the Bible sometimes refers to it as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The, uh, the prophets in particular use this terminology in this language. And sometimes the day of the Lord actually refers to the day that Jesus was crucified, but sometimes it also refers to his return. So you have to kind of read it carefully and look at the context. But the day of the Lord, that's one of those terms that the Bible uses. Another one is the return of Christ, that he will return. Jesus said, you know, I, I go to prepare a place for you and, and I will return. He uses the language of a, of a groom who goes away to get things ready and then he returns and, and gets his bride and now we can have the wedding celebration there's another term, uh, the coming or, or the presence of Christ. So sometimes you're reading through it talking about, you know, on his coming or on his presence. That's actually a really interesting word. Um, behind that word in the Greek, the word is parousia, and it was used of kings when they would make a royal appearance in a town. So imagine that you lived in a city that's not the capital city. You don't have the king there, but then all of a sudden you hear this trumpet sound. <gasps> what is that? And you see flags and banners and horses and it, oh it's going down the king is coming to town 
It's his parousia. It's his royal presence. We need to make preparation. We need to get the celebrations ready. We need to clean things up and get things in order. It's a very interesting word. And the word that we're looking at here today, appearing, reappearing, that's the word that the author of Hebrews uses. And I like this word. You know why? I like the word appearing because it emphasizes the fact that Jesus is not far off, distant, and disconnected. He's with us, amen? We don't see him with our natural eyes. We're separated, as it were, behind a curtain. But he's not far off and distant. I am convinced that one of the most uh, effective lies that the enemy tells, especially Westerners in the United States, is that God is far off, distant, disconnected, and disinterested. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is our high priest. He is, yes, behind a curtain. Yes, he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, but he is close, and he's ministering to us, and he's ministering on our behalf. The day of Jesus' return, it gets very mixed up, doesn't it? How many of you know there's some, I don't know, uh, what's the word, Um, speculation about the return of Jesus? How many of you know there's some just blatant misinformation about the return of Jesus? You get people and they take like a, like a USA Today and they take like the book of Daniel and they fold it all together in origami and then it like looks like, you know, one of the presidents or something, right? It's a, people do weird things with the return of Jesus. People do weird things with the end of the age. And the things that we need to know for certain is this. The first time that Jesus came, it was to deal with sin. It was to take our judgment upon himself. The time that he returns, however, will be a time for him to judge the world. I like the way that St. Augustine puts it. The first coming of Christ the Lord, God's Son and our Son, was in obscurity. The second will be in the sight of the whole world. When he came in obscurity, no one recognized him but his own servants. When he comes openly, he will be known by both the good and the bad. When he came in obscurity, it was to be judged. When he comes openly, it will be to judge. Let me say something about this word, judge. First of all, some people might have the, the kind of attitude like, like a kid who is doing something that they know they shouldn't be doing, but they haven't heard mom or dad's footsteps come down the stairs yet, so they think they're getting away with it. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, God sees everything. Your mama might have told you that she sees everything. She was lying a little bit. She saw more than you thought, but she didn't see everything. But God truly does see everything. And we are not getting away with anything. For those of you who are harboring secret sin, God sees and God knows. And God will judge. But the other thing I want you to understand about this idea of judging is that sometimes we use this word judging, we think of, you know, the, 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 only the aspect of punishment. We're going to make sure things get judged, things get punished. Judging has a very harsh connotation. I actually think the word judging is a much bigger word than that. Um, how many of you have ever, for whatever reason, I'm not judging, spent time in court? Raise your hand. Okay, you've gone for a traffic ticket, maybe you've gone to appear as a witness. I would not want to be a judge. Because I sit there and one person gets up and says, well, this is what happened. And they, they spell out their case and they say this, that, and the other thing. And then the other person gets up and says, oh, well, no, actually, this is what happened. And it's his word against his word. And there's, 
you know, evidence that kind of points both ways. It is a, what a, what a, what a challenging and difficult job to try to sit there and like sort through all of the knots and untangle everything and figure out what's right and true and just and fair. When we talk about Jesus the judge, what that means is he is the only one uniquely qualified to untangle all of the knots that we have tied up as humanity. He will judge the nations with justice and with righteousness. All of the messes that we've made, all of the knots that we've tied up, all of the he said, she said, God will sort it out in his son Jesus and all will be made right. When we think about judging, don't just think about punishing, thinking about restoration, peace, shalom, wholeness, wellness being brought to the world. That's good news. If you're a Christian, the word judgment shouldn't strike fear into your heart, first of all, because Christ Jesus bore the punishment that you deserved, so you're free from God's wrath. You're free from judgment in that sense, and on the positive sense, one day Christ will return. He'll sort it all out. Does anybody long for that day? Does anybody want that day to come soon? That's the cry of the church. Come, Lord Jesus. Come soon. Maranatha. This is freeing. This is freeing for us. But it's also challenging, isn't it? Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I want to take judgment into my own hands. I want to sort out right and wrong. I want to untangle all the knots. God, through his spirit, empowers us to do justice in the world. I do believe that. But there are some things that are just beyond our pay grade. <laughs> and only upon the return of Jesus will we see that process brought to completion. So yes, we fight for justice. Yes, we fight for peace. Yes, we fight for wholeness and well-being. We seek to care for orphans and widows and to uh, provide for the poor and to love those who are in distress. Uh, but sometimes there are just some knots that we, we just won't even be able to untangle this side of eternity. So we long for the return of Jesus. We have to entrust that Jesus will sort it all out when he returns. That's hard for me. That's, uh, honestly, I'm a planner. I want to plan I want to know, Jesus, when are you coming back so we could, you know, schedule this and I'll know when everything's going to be made right, right? Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour of my return. Seems like every decade someone writes a book saying that they know the day and the hour of his return, like, but if we could just know, wouldn't that be great? Thank you, Jesus. But ultimately, we have to trust justice to him. But this is freeing because when we think about the return of Christ, we get to imagine a day when we are fully restored Pastor and author Ray Steadman says this, for the many who trust in him and is not judgment that awaits beyond their personal death, this judgment has been forever removed by the sacrifice of Christ. Instead, they may confidently expect that he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation for those who are waiting for him. What yet awaits is the raising of the body so that the whole person becomes a dwelling place of God forever. Does that sound good to anyone this morning? Even as I look around this room and look uh, throughout our congregation today, I've seen crutches and canes and I've heard coughs and I've seen people bent over. I mean, the Apostle Paul talked about our outer selves are wasting away. You guys know what he's talking about, right? But one day, upon the return of Christ, we'll be raised imperishable, the Apostle Paul says, that the mortal will put on immortality. No more canes, no more crutches, no more cancer, no more diabetes, Probably no more baldness, amen, some of you guys, right? Like, all things will be restored. <laughs> I don't know why I thought of that. 
Sorry, Bill, it wasn't you, I promise. <laughs> oh, this is what you get for sitting in the front row. All things restored, all things set to right. We long for that day. Christians, we don't fear the return of Jesus. We long for that day, amen? These three unrepeatable one-time events, they, they challenge us, but they encourage us. If you're someone who is, who is not a Christian, I want to invite you today to, to experience another type of one-time event where you repent and ask God for his forgiveness and you receive a, a new heart, you receive a new spirit, you receive new life in Jesus. For those of you who are Christians, we repent in an ongoing way. We constantly receive new life, but there's nothing quite like that first time of surrendering to Jesus. I actually had the opportunity just last week to pray with a woman who said, I just surrendered my heart to Jesus and became a Christian just last Sunday uh, at the 11 o'clock service. What a, what a joy that was to see the tears streaming down her face and for her to say, yeah, I, I know that my sins are forgiven. Some of you have been, been waiting for the right moment Again, we don't know. You don't know when you're going to take your last breath, when you might die. We don't know when Jesus will return and there's no more second chances. So I invite you, today is the day. Today is the day. Surrender to Jesus. Receive his grace and his goodness. For others of you who are already Christians, this is a, an invitation for you to respond by, by trusting more in the finished work of Christ than ever before. His death was a one-time thing. You don't need to add to it. When you sin, repent, confess, and receive his grace and live with the joy that is yours. And his, his return, his future return is a secure thing. It's going to happen. A one-time, once-in-a-universe once opportunity. And we can trust on that day that all things will be made right in him. This is good news, amen? God, would you help us to trust you more. Help us to trust that, that your death on the cross was sufficient. Help us to trust that even though we die, death doesn't have the last word. God, help us to trust that you will one day return and sort everything out. Help us to have great confidence in these truths. We pray this in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. I want to invite us now to a time of response. We're going to respond in a few ways. First, through the giving of our tithes and offerings. I want to say a couple of things. First of all, it's kind of a new room layout for us. And so just practically, as they pass the buckets, if you're seated at one of these ends, would you just turn around and hand the bucket to the person in the row behind you so that way uh, we can kind of smoothly facilitate that? I want to say also just giving in general, uh, especially if you're new, we really encourage at Sound City Bible Church giving as worship. The Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver, and so we encourage you to give generously and cheerfully as an act of worship, not out of guilt or obligation. And then just practically speaking, some of you might want the, the give envelopes, especially if you're giving cash and you want to write your name down on it. Uh, those envelopes are available out at the Connect desk. We don't have them in the room with us, and so maybe next time grab one on your way in, or I uh, encourage you to give online or to text to give. Excuse me, that number's on the screen. We have a few discussion questions for this week uh, for our community groups in our homes. <coughs> Number one is this, how does Christ's death on the cross free you from having to punish yourself for your sins, failures, and flaws? <clears throat> Number two, death is unavoidable for every human, but Jesus has conquered death, amen? How do these truths challenge you and how do they comfort and encourage you? Number three, Jesus' return is a day of great dread for the non-Christian, but a day of great joy for a Christian, and why? And let's talk about that day. And, and then as we continue our discussion, we actually have these prayer points because we want to be people of prayer as well. So pray that we would grow more secure in Christ's finished work on the cross and that we would not feel the need to try to add to his sacrifice. Number two, pray that Jesus would return soon and bring his kingdom in full. 
And three, pray for those who are not yet Christians that they would come to know the freedom that is found in Christ's death and resurrection. We're also going to respond through a celebration of the Lord's table. Now, this is also going to be different. We have uh, kind of prepackaged cups, uh, mobile church, so mobile communion. Uh, Invite you to just similarly take one and, and pass it. Hold on to it for right now. Don't open it up just yet, if you would. While they're passing this out, I want to offer us a moment to just reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus, on his death. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11, and we'll talk about communion here in a moment. 1 Corinthians 11 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. As we continue in our time of of response and worship, uh, the the musicians are going to lead us in song in a time of singing. And this is a time for us to reflect on the nature of Christ's work for us. Invite the musicians to come up now. I would invite you to, as we begin our time of singing, to, to hold on to that bread and hold on to that juice. And, and as you are ready and as the Spirit leads you to then take the elements, you can pray with uh, someone who's with you, a spouse, a friend, your community group, maybe meet a stranger. And then as you're, as you're able and willing uh, to stand and sing with us. But let's remember today that Jesus' death is a one-time event. And who we who are Christians, our sins are forgiven. Amen? And as we sing, uh, a couple of these songs speak of the day when we'll be with Jesus in eternity. This one is a, somewhat of a newer, this first one is a newer one to us. Um, it says we'll feast in the house of Zion. That we'll feast with Jesus face to face. This, this meager cracker and little bit of juice will be one day a feast that we'll enjoy together in heaven. So I'm going to pray and then we'll begin our time of singing in response when you're ready. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to die, and it was a one-time definitive event that, that shaped and changed the whole entire universe. Lord Jesus, help us to trust that your death on the cross is sufficient to cover all of our sins for all time. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you conquered over death, that even though we will face death, should you not return, we will take a, a last breath one day. We thank you that that is not the end of the story, that Christ, you rose And you've promised us that we one day will rise too. We thank you that you're going to return. We thank you that that one day every eye will see and and every ear will hear and every knee will bow and we'll all see you in full glory and full splendor. And I pray that you would give us hope and encouragement to remain steadfast until that day. I ask your blessing on this time of singing and as we uh, eat of this bread and drink of this cup, may we do so uh, in a way of great joy in the salvation we have in Jesus. Amen. Church, let's respond now uh, when you're ready.